We know that Jesus spoke dozens of parables. And if he was um, given the task of picking a handful of parables, perhaps 10 parables, specifically for this generation, it's hard to imagine that he would leave this one out. People living in the richest era in world history, in one of the richest countries in that era, desperately need a parable about the dangers of relying on the blessings of this life. And for that reason, this is actually quite an uncomfortable parable to read. One writer I came across made this statement. He said that this parable casts a shadow over the most prosperous people the world has ever known. And I think that's very true. You imagine the material circumstances of the people who were there the day that Jesus spoke this parable. And then imagine if your house and all of the stuff that you've got in it, all of the contents and the conveniences that you have in your house, imagine if all of that was placed right in the middle of Jerusalem, in that community that heard this parable. You would be famously wealthy in that society. And I'm quite sure that if we were there with our circumstances today, Jesus would look at us and say, this particular parable is one that you definitely need to hear. It's only recorded in Luke, so we don't need to flip around different um, gospel writers. It's all here in front of us in Luke chapter 12, actually. It was spoken about six to seven months before Jesus' death. And the chapter before recorded how that Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to go to a meal at his house. And that meal turned into a raging argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. And he accused them of hypocrisy, of cruelty, and of corruption. And with the whole event in disarray, Jesus walks out of the front door and closes the door behind him and he looks out the front and there is an audience of thousands of people there. This massive crowd had gathered in front of that house. The ESV of Luke chapter 12 verse 1 says that they were trampling one another. And as the, the door is slammed shut behind Jesus and he leaves those opponents behind him in the house, he turns to that crowd and he said, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, of the danger that exists from the people in that house. And a lot of them have probably overheard the argument going on in there because it would have been a very loud confrontation that was taking place. And he warned them about the dangers that were going to come across anyone who followed Jesus. And he talked about the value that God places upon such faithful followers. And then, in amongst this massive crowd of thousands of people, someone manages to get heard. And someone sticks up his hand and actually managed to somehow get his voice heard across the rest of the crowd and asks a question. And the question is in Luke chapter 12 and verse 13, where we read, One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance for me. So here's this fellow who manages to somehow get himself heard over the top of the crowd, and he's in a situation where he's getting financially ripped off by his brother. And he calls Jesus master. Now, he didn't really think Jesus was a master. The, the word several translations render it teacher. It's sometimes used for a legal expert, someone who just determines legal matters. So he's not asking this as think, thinking Jesus is his master. He is asking Jesus as a lawyer. And the question he's asking has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus has been speaking about. 
But he's obviously pretty impressed with Jesus. And he's asking him not just for a ruling, but he's asking him to take his side in this legal matter. He rather fancies retaining Jesus as his legal counsel in his dispute with his brother. And Jesus' response to that question is just a wonderful model response about how to handle an issue that you're not actually personally involved in. You think about it, he had, he had three different options he could have responded to that question with. First option would be to say to that man, it's got nothing to do with me, it's not what I'm talking about, you sort it out amongst yourselves. He didn't take that option. The second option would be to, to become absolutely embroiled in it, to get personally involved in it, involved in all of the details of the case, and then make a decision. He didn't do that either. What he did was, he didn't get involved. He didn't want to know the specifics of the issue, certainly didn't want to get emotionally involved in it, but he gives a wise word of advice, a general principle which would diffuse and resolve the whole matter. Now that is real life wisdom, isn't it? Under extreme pressure in front of a massive crowd. And he talks about the principle of greed. And then he, he takes this question, he uses what was potentially a very distracting question. It wasn't what he was talking about to the crowd. He's, he's interrupted in the middle of his talk with a totally different subject. And yet he takes that question and he turns it into an opportunity to launch into an issue about money and possessions which he knew would have concerned the whole crowd. He knew that that man was asking that question. It wasn't just, he's not the only one thinking about those things. Everyone's thinking about those things at some stage in their life. So he takes the opportunity with this massive crowd to talk about that huge issue in their lives. Brilliantly handled when you think about it. And he says in Luke 12 and verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Those words judge and divider are very similar in Greek to the words master and divide in verse 13 in the man's question. The divider means a, an arbitrator. So Jesus rejects the title that the man has given to him and he rejects the request that the man has asked. Jesus had no interest in economic fairness as an outcome in itself, but he was very interested in the spirit that exists within people that makes them think that they deserve economic prosperity and fairness. That interested him very greatly. And that's what he's talking about. And he knew, as I said, not just that man was interested in it, but the whole crowd had an interest in that matter. So in verse 15, he addresses them all, says unto them, not just him, but them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. He says, beware. That word means, in the Greek, to watch or to guard. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's quite ironic because that's, that's exactly what we do. We, we beware, we watch and guard our possessions. And Jesus says, you, you watch your wealth because of what it can give you. Why don't you try watching your wealth for what it's actually costing you? And just so beautifully put, the way that verse expresses it. And he says, what you've got to be aware of is covetousness. And the word, well, the ESV, um, several other translations render that all covetousness. The NIV says all kinds of greed. Phillips says covetousness in any shape or form. 
Now, that would have been a very awkward moment for the questioner, wouldn't it? Because it's an obvious reference to him and perhaps also to his brother. But it would have been awkward for them all because they're all doing that, as we all do. And he talks about the abundance of things we have. The Greek means more than what you need. And then he immediately commences a parable about exactly that. The, the, the classic parable of the man with the barns. And what we want to do tonight is just look at three things. Firstly, we're going to look at just the basic message of the parable. Very simply, what, what is the, the, a summary of the basic message? Then we'll look at the details and then we'll look at the lesson behind the whole thing. Now, the parable appears in Luke 12, verse 16 to 20. And then in verse 21, there's an explanatory comment from Jesus. Now, the basic message of the parable is this. This is, this is how, 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 the summary that I would suggest. The basic message is the foolishness of separating our secular life from our religious life and making small things seem bigger than they really are. I'll just read that again. The foolishness of separating our secular life from our religious life and making small things seem bigger than they really are. What do we mean by secular life? Secular life means relating to earthly or temporary things as opposed to religious things. So it's, you know, it's the part of our life that's our job and our money, house, family, clothes, food, holidays, all that sort of thing. Our non-religious things, if we want to put it that way. That's our secular life. And this man foolishly separated those things from his religious life and made small things his priority. So there's the basic message in a nutshell. Let's just look at the story itself. Very simple story, well known to, to most of us, I'm sure. In verse 16, he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? He has become a financially successful man. And he thought about that. The word in the Greek means to reckon thoroughly, to take an inventory, to calculate. So this man's got spreadsheets. He's got it all sorted out. He's a very clever, well-organised man. And he has become officially financially independent. He's got more than what he needs right now. So what he doesn't need right now, but he's going to use in the future, needs to be stored. So what does he do? Verse 18. This is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. So he doesn't just want to add more barns. What he wants is a smaller number of bigger barns. Why would he want that? Well, he, he wants to... He wants to control what he's got. He said, I want to bestow my fruits. And the word in the Greek means to gather together. Rotherham says to gather my fruits. He wants maximum control over his grain. He wants to keep it and he wants to control it. So better to have a smaller number of, of big barns to keep maximum control over it all. Smart move. Very clever man. And the result will be in verse 19. I'll say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 
In other words, I'll never need to work again. Not only that, I'll be able to live very comfortably on what I have. He's calculated that what he has will last him for the rest of his life and in the manner to which he's become accustomed. It's not going to be a frugal retirement. It's going to be quite a nice setup for the rest of his life. So he's not a wasteful man. He's very careful. And that care has placed him in a very envious position. And you can imagine the listeners standing around listening to this story. At this point in the story, they would all be very envious of that man's circumstances. Certainly the questioner would have, the man who's you know, having the problem with his brother. He'd think, well, that'd be, that'd be nice if things were like that. And if we're honest, we are envious of him too, aren't we? We, we know what's coming in this parable, but... If we can imagine standing there and hearing it for the first time, we don't know what's going to happen. And no one in that crowd knew what was coming in this story. They're just thinking, well, this is a fantastic, what a, what a lucky man he is. We'd want to be in that position and we, and we would want to be in that circumstance too. It sounds very good. But then, as so often happens in the parables of Jesus, there's this shocking twist that happens, a twist that comes Sometimes several twists in a parable, but at least one that just comes as a shock to the audience. They didn't see it coming. Like the best stories, like the best TV shows and movies, it's got a twist that comes in that you can't see coming. And the master storyteller now in, inserts his twist in verse 20 with the word, but. And you can imagine him telling this story, but, and then this Pause after it, this sort of theatrical pause. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. In the margin of my Bible it says, do they require thy soul? Weymouth says they are demanding your soul from you. Maybe it's a reference to, to God's angels, who knows. But in any case, it's talking about death. And it's immediate death. And in Rotherham, where he, he shows where the emphasis in the Greek lies, the emphasis is on the words, on this very night. He's not going to get one restful, peaceful night. Well, he's actually going to get a very restful night. It's going to be more restful than what he bargained for. He's not going to get the nice morning where he wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, at about 10 or 11 o'clock, like I know some people do in this room, they wake up very late and think, oh, how marvellous. Nothing to do today. <laughs> so... That's, that's, he doesn't even get that, that beautiful morning. He just goes to sleep and that's it. And then Jesus makes a comment in verse 21 and that's the end of the story. We'll, go, we'll now go back and consider the lessons of the parable and then we'll finish with the verse in verse 21. So the story is very simple as we've seen. What's the lesson behind that story? Well, let's just recall what I said before, as I suggested, might be the basic message of the parable. The foolishness of separating our secular life from our religious life and making small things seem bigger than they really are. You think about the audience of this parable. When Jesus spoke this parable, he spoke it to an audience who would have all believed in God. Everyone at that time, believed in God. And it would be assumed that the man in the parable also believed in God. So he's at least a religious man, this man with the barns. But the problem was 
that his secular life, his business life, and his religious life don't intersect at all. In fact, what's happened is his secular life has completely overwhelmed and extinguished his religious life. One of the famous features of the parable is the self-centeredness of this religious man. He thinks about himself. It says in verse 17, he thought within himself. And then it, it proceeds to use the word I six times and the word my five times. So he's just always thinking about himself. And he even talks to himself, this man. In verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. The word soul means breath, vitality, or living creature. In other words, the word soul sort of sums up everything about us. It, it's what makes us a living entity. And he's talking to that living entity, which is himself. Why does Jesus depict this man as talking to his own identity as a living creature? And I think the answer is, not a particularly profound question, but he's... What he's doing, this man is now taking his cues and taking his instructions from himself only. His soul, which is himself, is being instructed and directed by himself. He talks to himself and he listens to himself. The whole thing is just within himself and God's not in the equation. Nothing exists except himself. His whole identity, his whole future is completely wrapped up in the contents of those barns and there's no part of him left for anything else. Now when you look through the parable, you can see that this, this separation into two lives, a secular life and a religious life, the first of which finally just overwhelms the second, is shown in three different ways in the parable. The first way is how he thinks about the source of his prosperity. Because in Luke chapter 12 and verse 16, it says, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Jesus didn't say that a man worked hard and built up a great fortune, which is actually what happened. It's described as though the man did nothing, but he would have... He would have worked hard. He somehow got to own that land. He owned it legally. Um, and he would have worked hard to you know, produce the fruit that it did. But Jesus sort of strips all that away and, and puts his finger on what actually happened. God has graciously caused that land to be fruitful. But that's not the way the man saw it. He said in verse 17, they're my fruits at the end of the verse. At the end of verse 18, they're my fruits. They're my goods. So when it came to the source of his prosperity, where did it come from? God's not in the picture as far as he's concerned. I've earned this stuff. It's mine and I've got it. He doesn't see God as the source of his prosperity. Not only that, he doesn't see God in where, what he's going to do with that prosperity. God plays no part in where it came from and God plays no part in where it's going to. So at the end of verse 19, what's going to, what I'm going to do with this, with this wealth it's in the end, I'm going to take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He sees no need to use any of it in God's service because he doesn't see that it's come from God. So why should it go to God? 
And of course, the Bible tells us it's, it's all come from God. Whatever we've got has come from God. We ought to give that back to God. But that's not the way he sees it. It's come from me, and I'm going to spend it on me. Now, we know that the law of Moses taught Israel about tithing. You give a tenth of your income back to God. And that was to teach them that everything comes from God and really we owe it all to God. So to teach that lesson, they gave a tenth back to God. And the problem is, when you think about it, we, we understand that law. We, we intellectually understand that principle of tithing. And we criticise the man with the barns. We say, well, he, you know, he should at least give a tenth back to God. He's giving nothing back to God. But when you think about it, that, that law in the law of Moses, it wasn't meant to be seen as just a bare minimum of our service to God. But the laws under the law of Moses were principles which were supposed to go over and above. We're supposed to see the, the, the spirit behind those laws and go above and beyond that spirit. If Jesus taught anything about the law of Moses, he most certainly taught that. And yet we read a law like tithing, and we say quite correctly, well, that taught that the children of Israel really owed everything to God. And yet we sit here as the richest generation in world history, and the fact is that we as a community give a fraction of a tenth of our income back to God. And yet we claim to fully understand the principle of tithing under the law of Moses. It's worth thinking about that, isn't it? It's worth us trying to do something about that. It's a very serious problem. So the summary so far, to this man, God played no part in where his wealth came from and therefore God plays no part in where his wealth is going. And thirdly, God plays no part in this man's personal future. You think about our life. We've got this very short life. It's a very short life followed by an eternal life. But this man thinks more about the short life than the long life. And he refers to this life, this short life in verse 19, as many years, which it may well be. But the lack of any mention of anything thereafter, coming after those many years, suggests that those many years were his priority. And when he thinks ahead, he only thinks about this life which he thinks is quite long, describes it as many years, even though it's just a fraction of the big life. And he feels like he's got total control over that life. He's got control over his barns and the contents of his barns, and he thinks that he's got control over his life. Four times in verses 18 and 19, he very confidently asserts, I will do this and that. But the problem was that his life wasn't in his control, like those barns were. I mean, even the barns weren't. I mean, it, 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 fire or flood or theft would have, would have ended that. But he felt he had control over that, and he had control over his life. But he didn't have control over his life. His life was in the control of another character in this little play, a character who hasn't appeared yet, but who's going to make a surprise appearance right at the very end. And that character is, of course, God himself, who says in verse 20, Thou fool. 
You notice in the, the, the word thou is in italics. It's really just fool. Most uh, translations just render it as that, fool with an exclamation mark. Imagine if this was like a little play, like a one-man show, or you so you thought, and you watch this man go about his business on the stage, and then suddenly it gets almost to the end of the play, and then suddenly from off stage you hear this big booming voice, fool! And you think, what on earth is going to happen now in this play? And up until this point, this man seemed very clever, very astute, very prudent and very successful. And he was all of those things. But suddenly the entrance of God's perspective makes what appeared to be very clever look very foolish. It made what looked like a very big empire look very, very small. He'd planned for many years and he had less than 24 hours to live. And God said, This night your soul shall be required of you. The very soul that the man had been talking to. The man's soul had listened to himself making assurances that it had no right to give. It had no real ability to give. He was taking his instructions from the wrong person. He should have been taking them from the person who actually controlled the thing that he's talking about, his life. And it's ironic that one of those assurances that he believed is expressed at the end of verse 19 where he said, take thy knees, eat, drink and be merry. Because that is very similar to two Old Testament passages which Jesus was reminding his listeners of and they each had a different lesson. We won't turn them up, but the first of them is in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 15. And in that, in that passage, it says there's, this passage says there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of this life if they come. And the verse actually says, eat, Drink and be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labour the days of his life which God giveth him under the sun. So the very verse this man was quoting contained the answer to his problem. The wealth that you've got has come from God. And the second passage in the Old Testament, the only other one that has that phrase, is Isaiah 22 verse 13, which is in the time of Hezekiah, when it says that there was a group of people in Jerusalem who thought, you know, we're gone, the Assyrians are going to kill us all, and they said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. So the same idea, but a totally different context. In that context, they appreciated that life is short. So those two passages, the first one said that our blessings come from God, and the second one said life is short. And this man quotes from both of those passages, but he understood neither of them and he missed the point of both of them. He thought that, his, his, that the things came from himself and he thought life was long. And he missed the point of both. And the whole, all of his confidence and all the control that he had over his life with the entrance of God into the picture, all of that collapses. And he was wrong about those three things. He was wrong about the source of his wealth. He's wrong about how it's going to be spent. And he's wrong about how long he's going to get to enjoy it. He's wrong on all three counts. He's, he's excluded God from every consideration. And the result was, of course, for him, absolutely devastating. Now, just before we get to the end, 
I just want to mention just two extra thoughts that sort of occurred to me as I was putting this together that might have occurred to you as well. I'm sure they did. But the first of those is just in relation to what the man did with his wealth. Because you think about it, Jesus has you know, created this character. This is an invention of Jesus' imagination. He could have created a man who just gained more and more and more than he could possibly spend, but just kept working and working like a workaholic into his 70s, 80s, 90s, like some sort of tycoon that just is worth just tens and tens of billions of dollars. And you just you get your calculator and you work out, it just would be impossible to spend. He could, he'd have to buy properties all day, every day, and he couldn't spend the money. And yet they keep working, these, these old tycoons. Jesus could have created a character like that, but he doesn't. This man, the moment he works out he's got enough to live comfortably for the rest of his life, he decides to stop working and he just relaxes and he enjoys what he's got. So he's aware of his mortality because he knows he doesn't need unlimited wealth. He just needs enough to last him his expected lifespan. And I thought to myself, what's wrong with that? <laughs> because you know, we look at a man like that and we'd say, well, good on him. We'd probably be envious of him, but hopefully we'd say, well, you know, good on him. It's not as if he's been dishonest. He hasn't, you know, he's, he's legitimately successful, he's, he's clever, he's, um, you know, he's worked hard, he's not being greedy. In fact, he's quite content with having enough just to last him the rest of his life, albeit at a comfortable lifestyle, but it's not ridiculously extravagant. Why does Jesus create a character like that? If I was putting the parable together, I'd make it this multi-millionaire who just works flat out, workaholic, and just makes more than he could ever, ever possibly spend. I think the answer to that is at the very end, in the comment that Jesus makes in verse 21, where Jesus said, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Phillips renders that this way. That is what happens to the man who hoards things for himself and is not rich where God is concerned. So finally, Jesus puts his finger right on this man's problem, and that is the lack of God in his life. If Jesus had said, or if Jesus, if Jesus had created this character who was obsessed with infinite wealth, unlimited wealth, that he works right into his 80s and 90s creating this wealth. I, would, I reckon his audience, and I reckon we, would conclude that that was the problem, an obsession with unlimited wealth. But he doesn't do that. That's not what the man does. And by making this man stop work and relax and enjoy his personal success, what Jesus does is he highlights the fact that even that seemingly sort of reasonable response to success is foolish if such comfort leaves God out of the picture. There's nothing wrong with being successful and acquiring wealth as a result. If there was something wrong with that, verse 21 would end halfway through. So is the man that lays up treasure for himself. But that's not the real problem, is it? It's if you do that and you're not rich toward God. For this man, the moment he had this, this life sorted, he stops everything. 
and there's nothing left. This short little life that he's got all worked out was all that he had. God wasn't in the picture and in the end that was his problem. So his death, when it came, was an absolute disaster because when his life was taken away there was nothing beyond it. In uh, his commentary on this, Matthew Henry writes this, This man took pains to lay up treasure in a world he was hastening from but took no care to lay it up in the world he was hastening to. Very beautifully put. Second thing I thought was this. Just in relation to the man's untimely death. Because when he put together the story, Jesus decided to make it that the man dies tonight. And he says, in verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself. But what if someone had said, what if someone in that audience had said, hang on a minute, Jesus, just to be fair, um, you've presented a a worst-case scenario. But in fairness, that's not what normally happens. If this story you're presenting really was real life, in most cases, nine times out of ten, he he probably would have lived a a long life and lived as long as he thought he was going to, and he would have carried out his plans for a reasonably long, relaxed retirement. That's what would normally be the case. You're making a point from a, you know, a fairly unusual extreme. But that's not what normally happens. So for me, I'll go with the odds. The odds are I probably am going to live till you know, 60, 70, 80 years old because that's the average. So why don't we go with that? You're taking an overly bleak view of life to make a point. That seems like a pretty fair comment to me, actually, if someone made that. Why does Jesus make him die immediately when that's not what usually happens? Can happen, but not usually. And I don't know if I'm overthinking it, but I thought that for quite a while because I thought I I wouldn't have, that's what I reckon I would do if I was making that, writing that parable. But I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show to to us and his listeners just the smallness of this life. Remember that basic message we said, the foolishness of making small things seem bigger than they really are. Even if this life ends up lasting many years, The fact that it has the potential to end immediately or to end very early tells us something about the quality of this life. It's telling us that this life is a very pale imitation of the big life, of eternal life. This life is very limited. It's very small. It's very insignificant. And in this parable, Jesus isn't comparing a life that ends tonight with a life that ends 50 years into into the future. The issue isn't time. The issue is is quality of life, the, the worth of the life and the substance of that life. If this life has the potential to just be snuffed out at any moment, that tells you something about this life, even if it does end up lasting for 100 years. But it's tenuous, isn't it? It's always tenuous. It's always hanging in the balance. And in the end, it will go in a moment. It's a relatively unimportant thing compared to the big life that, that is presented to us beyond that. In James chapter 4, just, I'll just read this to you. James expresses, I think, well, 
far, I don't think, I know, far better than what I'm doing. But this is what I think is the reason why Jesus puts the parable together that way. James 4 verse 14 and 15 says this from the ESV. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, James isn't talking just about people who die young, is he? He's talking, he's just saying this life is a mist. It's a vapour, whether you live for a year or a hundred years or something in between. The whole thing is an insubstantial mist. And I think Jesus decided the best way to convey the smallness of this life was to end the life of the man with the barns tonight. Or to put it another way, if you imagine, again, that this parable is a play. If you went along to the theatre to watch a one-hour play called The Man with the Barns, the first 55 minutes of the play would be all about this man and all about his plans and his calculations. And then right at the very end of that play, the other character enters the story, which is God. And everything that went before is suddenly irrelevant because it becomes clear right at the end that God was the one in charge all along. I don't think you'd leave that theatre thinking, well, the plans that the man made were very wise and very sensible. It's just that he didn't happen to live long enough. Rather, I think you'd leave the theatre thinking he really should have thought a lot more about the other character in the play. Because in the end, it was clear that the main character in life wasn't the man. It was God. There's a passage in Psalm 39, which I'll read for you, which sums up exactly what I'm trying to say, and exactly what I think that, that the principle behind that. Listen to this, Psalm 39, verse 4 to 6. O Lord, make me to know the end of... And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. That's a psalm written by David, who died at the age of 70. So he's not just talking about, you know, this is not talking about a, young, a man who died very young. He, he died at the biblical average of 70, a pretty good, pretty good age. And, but he says, the whole thing is fleeting. My life is just a shadow, it's a breath. We might say that of someone who dies you know, very, very young, but it's a 70-year-old man. But he realised what life really consisted of. Now I want to finish with another passage, which I'll read to you, which I think sums up everything we've seen in the parable of the man with the barns. And it's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. And there are four things that are found in this passage, not necessarily in this order. But they all were seen in the, in the parable of the man with the barns. Firstly, the fact that everything we have is from God. Secondly, 
that such blessings can be enjoyed, but they're temporary. They can be enjoyed, but they're temporary. Thirdly, we need to be generous with what we've got and not selfish. And fourthly, we need to view things from an eternal perspective. Listen to these three verses and hear all of the echoes from the parable of the man with the barns, where Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life.